Oh, listen to that. Boy, do I sound good. Okay. Very good. Brian takes good care of me. I probably hit the button and turned it off when I did that accidentally. Now you can hear me. Aren't you glad? You could have had a nap. Now you're going to have to stay awake because I'm going to be loud. Or Thank you, Benjamin. You did a good job, buddy. Thank you very much. I'm glad you're here this evening. Some of you are sitting six feet apart. That's good. I'm glad to see that. I do hope and pray, and I hope you pray as well. I know we pray that we might do well and so forth. Pray that this situation may not be as drastic as some reports have made it out to be, and I hope that's in your prayers every day. I believe in the power of God. I believe in the providence of God. I don't know what God will do, but I do believe in the power of God, and I hope you do too. And so I hope your prayers are in that direction as well. Enough said. Keep that in mind. We've been looking on the last few Sunday nights, been looking at uh, some things about what do you want to know about God. And I had four lessons, some questions that were, were brought up at some point, and I had them down, and I put them down. We looked at the idea, is God real? That's a good question. We dealt with that. We looked at the question of, does he know me and care for me? And that's a good question, and we dealt with that. There are two more, and this evening I want us to deal with the question, what does he want from me? What does God want from me? You know, if I hear that question, my mind immediately goes to one passage. You know, we can pick up the Bible and say it's throughout the Bible, and we'll come to that in just a few moments, but one passage comes to mind. There are some others that may parallel it in a way, but I think about what the prophet Micah said, because that question was out there. The Israelites were doing what they were doing, and they were living their lives, and then they would go and offer their sacrifices and say, well, I've done this, and I've done that. I've, I'm right with God in all of this. Listen to what Micah says, beginning in verse 6 of Micah chapter 6. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, sacrifices, you understand? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? What a great and succinct lesson. If it was up to those who were sitting around me a few minutes ago, that'd be the end of the lesson right there. But I want to share with you a few thoughts in this regard and make this as long as possible for those who complain. But I want you to think about this. When we ask the question, the question is a good one because I think it's one that's on the minds of a lot of people. What does God really want? What should I look at myself that God wants from me? I think one of the main things you want to know, anytime you take on a job, anytime you take on an occupation or something, uh, there's a question that comes to mind, and maybe when they're offering you a job, there's a question you want to ask. You want to ask them right away, when's my vacation? No, that's not the question. You want to know what the job requires of you. For no one wants to face the dissatisfied superior or boss or, or, or owner at the end of a day. Kind of like Adam and Eve knew they had done wrong when they hid from God. Maybe they weren't sure of everything, but they knew they had done wrong because God had already told them, you don't do this. And he told them some of the things that they could do. 
they already knew. You'd like to know that ahead of time. I think there were a lot of people, though, that professed to be Christians, sometimes sitting right here among us in our pews, who are pretty anxious about facing the judgment of God. Think about all the jokes and cartoons that have centered on the concepts of meeting on the judgment day or the day of judgment. And one of my favorites is one with the, the, the long line of people waiting outside of heaven to get through those proverbial gates that are there. And the one that I saw, I couldn't find it, but the one that I saw had a cheer and a groan of echoes across the way from the front of the line, and I uh, threw one in, but it's someone shouts, we've just heard, Sunday nights don't count. <laughs> well, it's a joke, not a very good one, but it's out there. Because in a more serious vein, People want to know, is this something I should be doing? Is this something I need to do? And I think that runs through our minds. Not that we're necessarily trying to get out of something. We just like to know with a certainty that sometimes escapes us. Because we are an independent people. And we trust our own judgment, our intuition. And we make up our assessments about things. I was thinking this, this last week about this, trying to think, where do, how do you illustrate this? Because we're all different, we're independent, and what does God require of me? Maybe it's not the same thing he requires of you. You look at passages like uh, 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, where it says, you know, basically what you're able to do, put that to work. But I was thinking about the list of great athletes of the 20th century. Not too awfully long ago, Michael Jordan was listed as the number one male athlete of the 20th century. Probably a lot of you saw him play, and he was amazing. He was an amazing athlete, amazing basketball player. I loved watching him play. You never felt like a game was out, completely out of reach if he was still playing in the game, that kind of thing. But let's make a, a limited claim and say that he is the greatest basketball player of all time, probably not too far-fetched. But how do we make that determination? On what basis do we make? Because we like to watch him play? Because he could fly higher or further, stay in the air longer, or seem like his percentage was higher? On what, what do we do that? Is it points scored, steals, assists, general defense, or, or what? Is it his personal appeal? We like the way he looked? What is it that made us determine that he was the greatest of all time? Let me add another thing to the mix. Suppose... Just suppose, and if you grant me a little bit of latitude here, that he was playing on a different team, pushed into a different position, and if he was, would that have changed his statistics? There's no doubt he would have been an outstanding player, but if he'd had to play a different position with different players who were, had different abilities, would that have changed some of the statistics and the ability to achieve them? Possibly. I'm just saying. We make assumptions based on what we see, sometimes by our observation, but not always on statistical data or whatever. How do we make those determinations? So what I'm saying is we know we are inadequate before God. We know that we stand before God. We are imperfect, facing the perfect. And we have a tendency to want specific instructions or a plan to follow that is very detailed from God. And if we don't have that specific plan, 
we have uh, we tend to substitute our subjective conclusions and think we've got it all together so do we really know do have we really determined or maybe the question what is it that God wants from us or from me and I guess it really is an age-old question so let's look at Micah for just a minute notice what Micah said he has shown you verse 8 he has shown you fact is it's there but are we observing are we willing to look at it was the hand of God really noticed did we really notice did mankind really notice that God uh, what should be gratitude for something is often turned into expectation based on on feeling that we deserve this therefore it's ours uh, maybe it's it's seen as a work of our of our own hands rather than the work of God I think about Nebuchadnezzar as he looked out on the great city probably the greatest city of its time Babylon you know what he said Nebuchadnezzar looked out on it Daniel 4 and verse 30 and he said ah oh, great Babylon that I have built. He was the most powerful leader in the world at that time. There's no doubt about it. But the city, this beautiful city, this marvelous capital that I have built, he said. Of course, there were some consequences for that, and you can read that story and go back to Daniel 4 and read that story, but he said, I have built. We may simply take for granted, or we may even ignore the hand of God in the things that we see. We've talked some about that. We look at our daily blessings every day. We breathe the air around us. We absorb the sunshine, the rain, or whatever it might be, and we, we absorb it and give it very little thought sometimes. You know, usually when I get back from a walk with the dog, and all, and I'm going to keep walking him unless he gets the coronavirus, then he has to walk himself. Uh, that coffee is made. Now, yeah, I had to set it up, and I had to put it in there. I had to set the time. But, you know, I come back in in the morning, and that coffee is already in that thermal cup waiting for me or in the process of making, depending on how quickly I get back. That's amazing, isn't it? You know why that's possible? Because somebody invented the machine that would do this and everything, you know why it's possible to go further? Time. The measurement of time and the ability of time to function exactly as it does, if it didn't, we wouldn't be able to do that. What a blessing it is to be able to subdivide, make time, figure it out, and work within time frames. Did you ever think about that? What a blessing that is. I can tell by your baffled, sleepy eyes that that's not going anywhere, but that's a reality. Anyway, move on from that. But God, we take for granted things that God does all the time. And, and I know we can't stop and say, oh, marvel, time. Another minute passed. Isn't it a blessing? Lord, and I, I know, but we need to appreciate that these are from God. Are we observing what God has put before us? Some things come easily. Years of distraction left the Jews focusing, not focusing on God, but on themselves and, and thinking they had it all made. Even Jesus' disciples were baffled sometimes. I think about when, after he had fed so many, he goes along and he, he tells them, he tells them in Matthew 17, uh, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they said, Oh, he's getting on to us because we didn't bring any bread. And Jesus had to correct them. Jesus had to correct them. 
And then uh, Matthew 17, where I was going with that, was when they were baffled about the young man they couldn't cast the evil spirit out of. You see, they didn't always understand where he was coming from. And Jesus said, well, you need a better focus and prayer and fasting. It's not about you. It's about your relationship to God. All those things come into play. So he has shown you, Micah says. He's shown you. He's shown us day in and day out. And in a way, Micah is telling you that same message that you've heard in other places. Maybe your wife's told you. Maybe your mother told you. I've told you a million times. How many times have, have teachers, people teaching someone, whether it's in a Sunday school, public school, private school, to your children at home, whoever it is, you've had, you teach them something, and they come back again and said, now, now what was that? How did, I do, how did we do that again? Now I'll say again, mothers have a way of letting us know what we missed. And that's the way it was with the, the disciples and, and the idea of the leaven, and that was Mark 8 that I was pointing to with that, and I got off track a little bit, but in Mark 8. And notice what he, he said to them at that point. When they were worried about bread, and he was talking about leaven, he said, having eyes you do not see, Having ears you do not hear and you do not remember. Well, that's pretty pointed, isn't it? What's the message? There's a message here. The message is wake up and recognize. When Micah put, answers this question, what do we need to bring before the Lord? He's saying, wake up and recognize it was on them. They wanted to boil God down to a bunch of do's and don'ts and forget about the heart. Remember what Isaiah said? They, they honor me with their mouths, praise me with their lips, but their hearts, their hearts are far from me. Jesus quoted that in Matthew 15. It is on us. What does the Lord require of you? It is on us. We've got 66 printed books. We've got 66 printed books, and we've got the example of the life of Jesus in them telling us what God wants from us. We don't have much excuse. He has shown you, oh man. But one thing that, that Micah reminds us here, and here's a really good point, and then we come back to answer the question. It's not about the sacrifices. Sacrifices have become a way, those animal sacrifices and the other offerings that they'd make have become a way of paying for what they knew not to do, but they did it anyway. And I think we, we sometimes use God that way in our prayers. We, we do something we know we shouldn't do, and we go to God knowing he's going to forgive us, and we say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, please help me, and forgive me of doing this. And sometimes we do that with people too, don't we? And the sacrifices became like that. If I'm going to go and do this, then I've got to go pay that sacrifice over there. Okay, well, that's the cost of business, so to speak. The offering of sin sacrifices was intended. It had an intention to help Israel see that there was a real cost when sinning was done. It was in order to try to get them to repent and have some regret about that. That's what Paul tried to get across in Romans 7 as well. And so, as I say, for many it just became the cost of doing business under the Old Testament law. But don't we, don't we sometimes tend to measure the price of the penalty? 
I think about those basketball teams and, and their luxury tax. You know, if you, your team and your, your payroll gets up so high, and somebody, some of you know this a whole lot better than I do. I just know a little bit about it. Your payroll gets so high, you know, you're about that, then you've got to pay a luxury tax because you're paying above what's allowable in that regard. And sometimes they think, well, if we're winning games, we're getting enough people in the seats, we're making enough money, then it's worth it. But the rule says you're supposed to stop here. Well, you pay the luxury tax. Well, that's just the cost of doing business. Sometimes we carry that over to our ways with God. It's just the cost of doing business. That's what they were doing in the old days because we tend to measure the price of the penalty. I was thinking about an old dog we used to have. We lo I loved that dog. He was a, he was a great dog. And all, when we got him, we didn't have a fenced-in yard, but he, he was free. And then we moved into to a town where they, we had a fenced yard and we let him run free for a while. Somebody says, no, you can't. It's against the rule. Okay, we'll put him in the yard. So we closed him in the yard. That lasted for maybe a day or so. And that dog, that dog, I tell you what, he had the strongest hind legs I think I ever saw on a dog. He could stand on those hind legs indefinitely. He'd just stand there, you know, and, and all. And I thought, well, if I, if he, sometimes he was better looking than the future kids we had. We might have put clothes on him and walked him around. But he was strong, and he could leap like crazy. He pretty soon learned that he could leap over the fence. It was one of those four-foot chain-link fences. He'd just hop right over it like it was nothing. So one of the farmers said, let's put a hot wire around it. Being an ignorant city boy, I said, what? He said, let's put a hot wire around it. He says, you know those wires they put out to keep cattle in certain places? Oh, yeah, I've hit one or two of those when I've been out hunting before. Yeah, I knew what he was talking about then. So he came over and helped me. We put a hot wire right about that far above the fence. So we got about five feet or so up there, and that dog's got a clear five feet, and really he couldn't do it very well. It lasted for about a day. And then we realized he would jump, he would hit that hot wire, he would yelp as loud as he could, and just keep on going. To him, it was worth the pain of hitting that hot wire to get out of that yard. Sometimes we're that way, aren't we? I don't mean to bore you with a story. I love that dog. But that's the way we act sometimes. Sometimes Christians act that very way. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound was a similar, a parallel to that idea in Romans 6. Because we want to do what we want to do. And then we know we've got to deal with God. And so we'll pull on his grace and we'll get this. And the dog yelps and he just keeps on running. But Paul says we need some godly sorrow. We need some recognition that makes the sacrifice work. It's not just about hurting or just, just feeling sorry, because sorry don't feed the bulldog, as they said. It means that just saying that you are sorry doesn't change the fact that you did something wrong. Just saying it doesn't make a difference. I listened to a preacher at the seminar the other day, and he was talking about how, you know, your mother would make you say sorry to your sibling and everything. And, my, you know, my mother would make us, she didn't know about the coronavirus, but she would make us, my older sister, and she was a pain, but my older sister, we'd get into a fight and everything, and my mother would make us apologize. We to say, I'm sorry. And then we'd have to say, I love you. Then I'd have to kiss her. That was it just beneath contempt. It didn't mean a thing. I was still mad. Didn't mean a thing. We can say the words. We can take some action and not 
mean a thing. Sorry, don't feed the bulldog, as they say. It's the power of turning a life into repentance and action toward God. A broken and contrite heart or spirit is what is needed. Psalm 51, as David writing about himself, or Isaiah 66 and verse 2, God desires and looks upon that contrite spirit. It's not about just the sacrifices. It gets down to the heart and the action. The heart in the action, I should say. So where do we go with this? What's, what's Micah telling us? And then we'll, we'll try to get it in under the, uh, the time limit. Micah's telling us R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Aren't you glad I didn't sing it? And that equals fear him. Have that honor, that respect for him. It's about the motive he's talking about. Jesus called, called it the greatest commandment. Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, spirit. You know, love God. It's not just the doing of the thing. It's the reason for the doing of the thing that he presses. Isn't that, isn't that bad? We know that. We know that in our minds. And so Micah offers us. Micah reminds us. He reminds us of those three characteristics God desires to see in your life, in my life, in our lives. He needs to see them in your life. Number one, he says we need just actions. Not just actions, but justifying action. We need action. When I looked at that later, I thought, just actions. No, that that had the wrong connotation. wasn't exactly what I meant in mind. It means no deceit or no selfish benefit, but simply doing what you know is just or right. That's what we're talking about here. Do the right thing. Haven't you heard that before? Sure we have. Let's do the right thing. Do it no matter what. Do it anytime. Do it all the time. Always do the right thing. Do justly. Secondly, love mercy. That is the extension and appreciation of what mercy is. There's no begrudging forgiveness. There's none of that, like I said, you know, I'll say I'm sorry. I'll say I love you. I'll even kiss you if I've got to. It's real mercy. Probably most of us have dealt with it at some time or another in our lives where mercy has been extended to us that we really recognized it was. This is no begrudging forgiveness, but this is one who knows he or she has been forgiven. We know we've been forgiven, and we're ready to extend it. This is not one of those deals where, like Peter, when he said, how many times, how often shall I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? You're on number six. You better not mess with me much longer. No. Jesus, well, how about 70 times seven? Oh. It's extension and appreciation of mercy in the same way God, you want God's mercy on you. What was the prayer? How did it go? You know it. We've quoted it. Forgive us our sins or our trespasses as we forgive those who sin or trespass against us. The parallel there is a powerful recognition. Micah gives us one more. It's about our living devotion to God and walk humbly with your God. More than attending to required activities, 
This is a determination of involvement with God. This is to be by his side. This is to hold on to him. This is to share with him. This is to relate to him. This is to be near, to hear what he has to say, to know what he's saying, to respond to him, to be with God, to know that you are walking right along with God. John calls it walking in the light as he is in the light. It's not just doing what you got to do to get by. It is a determined relationship in every engagement of your life. It's not saying, yeah, I got God. I put him over here in this place. No, God is in all this. A living devotion to God and walk humbly. And I love that word humbly, don't you? It sounds, it just sounds good. And we think about it so passively. No, it doesn't mean passively. It means actively determined to serve. That's what humbly is. Walk humbly with your God. So, Micah said it. You got it. I took three lines, turned them into a long sermon. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. What does God require? You say, wait a minute, I was looking for the specifics. You apply them. It works in all the specifics. That's the way it works. I think we can definitely identify some of the specifics, as I said, that God wants in our lives. We know some of the things that he specifies we need to be and we need to do. Still, what he especially desires to see in you and in me is the character of his nature reflected in everything we do. That's a pretty big challenge for most of us in the everyday. What does God want of me? Micah gave us a pretty good answer, I think. This evening we